0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from our business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Hayley Wooden. BIV hosts a number of events throughout the year, and we have two events in particular coming up. That I want to draw your attention to. This week on September 26th, we have our Cannabis Investors Forum. If you're interested in understanding cannabis, the business and investment opportunities that are coming about because of legalization, this is the event. We have a great lineup of panelists who can answer all of your questions, including, hey, what'll happen to me at the US border if I'm an investor in this space? For more information on that, visit biv.com slash events. Coming up, we also have our 2018 Top 100 Fastest Growing Companies reception on October 4th at TELUS Garden. We'll be celebrating BC's fastest growing companies. Some of these companies, they've seen more than 1,000 or 2,000% growth. This is a chance to meet some of the people pushing these businesses to new heights. You can visit biv.com slash fastest for information. Today on the show, we'll be talking about real estate. First, the City of Vancouver's new local first policy, the first of its kind in Canada, and later on, the largest commercial development in Railtown in 50 years. You're listening to BIV today. The city of Vancouver is the first city in Canada to require local hiring and purchasing on major development projects. The policy was announced last week, and it makes Vancouver the first major city in the country to introduce a formal community benefit agreement, or CBA. Jason Turcott is the vice president of development at Cressy Development Group. He joins me now to discuss. Jason, good to have you back on the show.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: We've spoken to you many times about CACs, Community Amenity Contributions. How is this CBA different? What is it designed to do?
1: Well, the, the community amenity contributions are simply um, a financial contribution, uh, generally cash in lieu or, or a physical uh, you know, asset being constructed. But generally, those are cash in lieu contributions through rezoning that uh, are provided to the city, which are intended to. Um, build amenities for uh, the residents of the city uh, this is a little different and then this is uh, the city uh, coming together with a policy to try and encourage or require um, um, developers and their and their uh, subcontractors to um, hire locally uh, source local goods and products and uh, to then further to source them from um, groups with uh, different different um, uh, you know different diversities. You know um, businesses owned by uh, primarily by women and indigenous groups, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So certainly a different uh, a different kind of approach to um, to community uh, policy than the community amenity amenity contribution.
0: Mm-hmm. And it looks like this will be required for developments over 45,000 square meters and then optional, of course, for smaller developments. Uh, Looking at that threshold, how many developments will this affect? Is it a lot of them in Vancouver? Is it a select few? What sense is that?
1: Yeah, I don't have the the stats. I didn't go through and look at how many that is, but just sort of knowing uh, how many, I mean, that's a very large scale development Mm -hmm. at 45,000 square meters. That's pushing 500,000 square feet. Um, that is a very, very large uh, rezoning uh, project, uh, of which in the city of Vancouver there are not that many. I would be surprised if there were more than, oh, I don't know, four or five of those a year, if even that many. That's a, that's a pretty unique project.
0: Mm. Now, do you think this is something that many developers may choose to opt into because the option's there, even if it's not required?
1: um you know i, I suspect not and that's not to discredit the intention of the policy which i think is very uh very good but i think you know we've talked about this on your show before um there is a critical shortage of 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 labor um and certainly i think anybody looking to you know put some work boots on and work is probably going to find themselves you know, available or uh, you know find themselves In a situation where the work is available, Um, and I think you know, my concern with this is, and I've I've read through the policy, you know, and it's still not clear to me exactly how this is applied. Um, And I think it's important, you know, when you when you when you think about how most development projects work, you know, park Casino is a bit of a a unique situation, but where most developments how they work is you have a private uh, entity that. Buys a piece of land and then and then endeavors to develop it. And most of the jobs that are actually created are not jobs, you know, handed out directly by the developer. These are um, uh, most of the construction work is either done through a general contractor or even in our cases we have self performing construction management. It's all subbed out to subcontractors. And frankly, I don't know how they go about hiring their people or what their own internal policies are and, and I don't know even who that subcontractor will be at the time of rezoning enactment because uh, it's simply too far out. Um, so I suspect that uh, most developers will will avoid putting any further constraints on their ability to find um, you know the, the right price and the right uh, uh, available contractor. Um, so I don't see a lot of people opting in
0: mm-hmm. and, you know, and-
1: uh, on their own accord.
0: Yeah, and for those who don't have the option, they're the major few developments going on in the city every year. Is it clear whether it's going to be their responsibility to ensure their their contractor or subcontractor meets this threshold? Does that fall to the city? How does sort of compliance work in this case?
1: Well, I, it seems like they're taking a slightly different approach than sort of what they're using as the as the benchmark project, which is Park and which had a third party. Uh, uh, I guess monitoring this, and 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 I've read the criteria for analysis, and and frankly, don't quite understand it. Um, so it, it is one of my concerns. How does this get monitored? Who's, you know, and if we hire a subcontractor, and even if in our contract we have it as a condition, for instance, the ten percent uh, local Vancouver residents, if they don't meet that, then what? You know, how do I how do I as a developer, um, uh, how am I on the hook for this, or what are the requirements of, of, of us as developers if our subtrades don't meet that requirement, um, and who is monitoring it? That that to me is not clear. Uh, and like I said, I, I my fear in all this is is it's just a it's a further complication that um, and anytime there's sort of any uh, uncertainty, uh, particularly in a marketplace like we have right now, which is so so scarce on 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 um, skilled labor, on any kind of labor in general. Um, what it usually means to us is increased costs, and there's no shortage of large projects. And, and when we talk about, and I think it's important to to kind of point out, when we talk about projects of this scale, um, there are only a handful of contractors in the in the big trades, especially you know formwork, uh, formwork and concrete, uh, rebar, um, you know, mechanical systems, electrical systems. When you get into projects of this scale, we're only talking about a handful of companies that have the capacity to take on projects this big. And there are no shortage of them in neighboring municipalities where these where these types of agreements are not in place. And my fear is that they simply focus their energy on those, and uh, the pricing in the city of Vancouver continues to climb even higher. Um, and we are seeing an increasing discrepancy in the numbers that we are getting for budgeting purposes in the city of Vancouver versus their neighboring municipalities.
0: Interesting. Now, this is the first of its kind for Vancouver. Do you think there's a possibility that uh, this is the first step and then instead of just dealing with these select few developments, they maybe lower the threshold so it's medium-sized to large-scale developments that might, might be subject to this?
1: Yeah, I think there's, the, there's certainly that possibility. And to me, it strikes me as a little interesting that they chose such a large-scale development and I'm sure that's through some consultation that we can't afford uh, you know further further complexities on the approvals process uh, on the majority of our projects and I suspect that the, the the larger number was 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 chosen to limit the number of projects that this would uh, apply to uh, in part the um, uh, you know to allow the industry to to adapt and to see the implications before applying it to all of the projects. But in reading through the the, the, the policy documents and, and, and all of the various studies that they did, it, it strikes me as, as, again, a need for these types of um, discussions to happen at a more regional level. And, and again, we this is something we've talked on your show about before. Mm-hmm. It, it's very difficult to apply a policy like this when you're, when you're hiring locals and sourcing local products and then to, to isolate it to the boundaries of the City of Vancouver because, quite frankly, we don't live that way. Um, our our communities are not built that way. Yes, there is a there is a municipal boundary that runs down Boundary Road, um, but people travel back and forth. You know, they, they may choose to live in one area versus another, not by necessity but by choice. And you know, I think that if and 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 to my to my earlier point of you know maybe it it being a deterrent for people to price projects in the city of Vancouver in any kind of way and focus more on projects in Surrey or Burnaby or Coquitlam or New Westminster. Um, again, I think re-emphasizes the need for this type of conversation to happen at the regional level and um, Metro Vancouver needing to play a bigger role. If, if these are indeed initiatives that uh, government believes important, which I, which I, like I said, I see some merit in, in what they're trying to achieve here. I think it needs to happen at the regional level and not necessarily at the, the city by city level.
0: Because mm-hmm. it, it, it is a nice idea. It has a Sort of good intentions at its core, but what I hear you saying is this could serve potentially as a barrier to bringing about more supply, specifically in Vancouver. Is that right?
1: Yeah, like I said, it just you know I've read this thing through and through, and there's a lot of question marks I have, and I can only imagine that um, suppliers and subcontractors, etc., etc., would would have those same uncertainties and not Mm -hmm. knowing what the requirements of them of of monitoring or you know if i can't find somebody then what you know all it does is make them adjust for that risk and that usually means higher pricing and we are already seeing a a growing discrepancy in the cost to build a tower in Vancouver versus neighboring municipalities and a lot of that comes about because it's just simply more complicated access is more complicated you know the rules are more complicated and with all these complications, and it, it requires a a higher uh, a higher number of people to sort through all of those details. Um, there's there's the higher risk that you know that there's a that there's a contravention of one of these policies, which results in some kind of penalty or or delay. And and each time there's an uncertainty, somebody needs to take that risk. And with with a greater risk, you know, greater reward. That is you know the market dynamic. And I think that is why we're seeing an ever increasing. Spread between the cost to build similar buildings, for example, between uh, Burnaby and and the city of Vancouver.
0: How big has that spread gotten? Is there a, a figure? Is it possible to quantify, either in a multiple or a dollar figure?
1: Yeah, it's it's it is difficult to quantify because, of course, no two projects are exactly alike. But uh, you know, I I wouldn't hesitate to say that it's 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 starting to push twenty percent. Mm. Um, you know, certainly it's ten percent of a premium for for. Um, you know, as direct a a tower or a a project as you could find. But I actually think it might be exceeding that now and and pushing towards a 20% premium in the city.
0: Wow, that's significant. One of the the question marks I had around sort of reading the release from the city, there's a 10% requirement for entry-level jobs to go to people local. And then it seems there's also a requirement to have 10% of goods and services sourced from local Vancouver suppliers. Is that feasible in terms of looking at the inputs that go into a local development? Would it be realistic to be able to source 10% of what goes into a building locally?
1: Well, no and I think they recognize that in the policy and frankly they, they they go on in in that section of the policy to say you know we we understand the limited supply of industrial lands in the city of Vancouver and so that portion they're certainly open to looking at a more regional application of the policy and, mm-hmm. and they even go further to say it might be even national or global provided that there's a there's a local element to it. So I think that they've fairly assessed the 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 feasibility of that and, and recognize that it may need to be more of a regional uh, regional approach to that particular requirement.
0: Mm. So bottom line then, Jason, we have this new policy in Vancouver. What do you think uh, the immediate impact is going to be? You mentioned maybe concern about what this may mean. It may potentially deter developments, but in the shorter term, what benefits do you think come from this?
1: Well, if it, if it means that um, we, we see some, some, um, some folks who have uh, – been a little less fortunate, get a little more attention to, to being brought on to, to, a, to a job site, to, to learning some skills, that is a, obviously a great thing. I mean, nobody's going to argue with that. Um, and I think that, you know, and if you're talking about the immediate impact and recognizing how few uh, rezonings in the city are of 400, and, you know, uh, sorry, 500,000 square feet or bigger, 45,000 square meters, there are very few of them. So it's not going to have a, a real significant impact immediately. Um, and it will give an opportunity for the marketplace to adjust and assess whether or not there's there's merit to a policy like that on a on a broader scale. Um, uh, but again, I I think when you look at the 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 scarcity of of those size of developments, it's 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 not going to have a real big effect immediately. But uh, what it means for the future, um, I'm not sure.
0: Hmm. I wonder too about these entry level jobs. I'm not sure how much they pay, and it might vary. But whether people can afford to live in Vancouver if they're going to be living off the salary from those jobs?
1: Well, yeah. and I, I don't know that that conversation changes much, whether they live in Vancouver or Burnaby or, or North Vancouver mm. or, or, you know, Richmond. I mean, it, it, we live in an expensive region, and you're quite right. Uh, you know, anybody on one of those real entry-level jobs is going to have a, a challenge making ends meet. Um, having said that, the, the the construction industry, even at the entry level, does is one of the industries where entry-level jobs probably pay you know, at the higher end of, mm-hmm. of what you'd expect an entry-level job to pay, so I suppose that a further uh, reasoning behind why um, our sector has been the one chosen to, uh, to try this type of policy out on. Um, so you know, I, you know that that's a good thing, I suppose. But yeah, you're quite right. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're Vancouver or any of the neighboring municipalities. It's it's hard to make ends meet on any kind of uh, entry level salary.
0: Mm-hmm. Jason is always great to have you on the show. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks for coming on.
1: My
2: pleasure.
0: That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. As we've been discussing in our municipal election coverage, the availability and affordability of commercial and industrial space is a concern and a major constraint for local businesses. Now, there are some opportunities to address this, including in the area of Railtown, which actually has around 832,000 square feet of developable space. The first commercial space to be built in Railtown in 50 years is actually currently under development. Brian Roach joins me now. He's the president of of Rendition Developments, which is spearheading this development called Bench Railtown. Brian, good to have you on the show.
2: Yes, thanks for having me on.
0: It surprised me that this is really the first major commercial space to be built in 50 years, uh, 50 years ago. What was Railtown like and sort of where are we today in its transformation? Oh, uh, well,
2: 50 years ago, I don't know if- any of us were really here but uh the the tales of it were very uh, industrial i mean it was serving the rail yards, shipping yards uh it was in use reuse at the time uh it was in the late 90s when the evolution or change of railtown really started when people started moving in there i think artists um were the first group of moving into the old uh, industrial buildings that started the trend of what we see today which is an eclectic mix of different groups, uh, we call them the makers, uh, moving into Railtown.
0: What do you think the appeal was for makers moving into ultimately a quite a heavy industrial space?
2: Well, it's the I think the, the appeal was one thing is being on the edge of the city. You're kind of on the outskirts. It's this little hidden gem. The mm-hmm. buildings themselves are historic and they're, they're great spaces to work in, the brick, the timber, uh, the views. You've got unobstructed views of the North Shore Mountains. Um, and it is quite kind of, if you've been down there, it's this quiet little node away from everything. So while you're in the city, the heart of the city, you're kind of on this three-block strip that's kind of away from the city. It almost feels like you're uh, separated from the rest of the downtown core.
0: Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, so close to it, too. It's very accessible.
2: Yes. No, it's a great area. I mean, the walking distance, the proximity to downtown, uh, access to amenities, the bike lanes, uh, transits. A couple of blocks away, um, waterfront station, a fourteen minute walk. Uh, it's It really is downtown without the hustle and bustle of downtown. Uh, the other reason that people love it is at the time it was uh, economical.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a very important piece, <laughs> particularly in a city <laughs> yeah. like vancouver. now i'm I'm curious why hasn't there been more commercial development prior to this project that's now underway?
2: Uh, The zoning uncertainty at the time, it was just recently, early 2017, when the city of Vancouver amended their industrial zoning policy for Railtown. Prior to that, uh, the zoning was called M2, which was manufacturing. So it was heavy industrial, uh, light industrial, heavy industrial use. And a lot of these these tenants that were in there, even up to then, were technically in there illegally. They weren't allowed to be there. A lot of them didn't have business licenses. Um, But, you know, the city recognizing this uh, made a a change to the zoning policy to open it up uh, and modernizing their view on what manufacturing and industrial use was.
0: Mm -hmm. And I mentioned at the top the the amount of square feet of developable space that remains in the area. There's clearly a lot of opportunity. But I'm curious, we've heard fairly frequently over the last number of years the fact that industrial land is in short supply. why didn't we have maybe more industrial developments for some of these tenants? Was it just the nature of the space? Was it uh, the wrong kind of zoning for heavy industrial? What, why don't you think we maybe saw a, more of a buildup and use of this available space for for typical industrial?
2: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there with the, the use and the, the, the building. The buildings aren't conducive for your traditional uh, industrial use. Mm. Uh, the buildings are you know, wood frame, uh, loading's an issue, getting trucks in and out of the, out of the Railtown core is very difficult, uh, you know, low ceilings. So all the things that are detractant to heavy industrial is what you see in Railtown. Um, and that's why the t- traditional industrial users aren't there and haven't been there. And the other part is, you know, traditional industrial users need lots of space and these buildings are small to 3,000 square feet on a floor. It doesn't allow for expansion, growth, the large industrial use that you would traditionally see on these these types of uh, users.
0: So it was zoned for one thing, but practically speaking yes. was made for use for a totally other kind of zoning requirement. Correct. Now, tell me a bit about the project you're working on and what kinds of tenants might be suitable for this space.
2: Sure, we're doing a six-story uh, flex office industrial use. Uh, the I-4 zoning allows for a variety of uses, um, so we're we're catering to these uses. It'll be a concrete building, glass. Um, it's kind of it's a juxtaposition, let's say, to the old use, but paying homage to some of the surrounding buildings with the glass, the the zinc, the concrete. Um, so we're, we're we're fitting into the existing fabric of the neighborhood, and um, the use we're looking after would be that it's a continuation of the existing eclectic mix of the neighborhood. Whether it's um, artists, um, industrial designers, uh, architects, uh, clothing manufacturers is a big plus in that neighborhood. Uh, furniture manufacturers. Uh, one of the main things we're looking to program is an amenity use in that in that area. The ground floor, we're looking for a coffee shop, a small restaurant, something to add an amenity to the building. Uh, that's really our my vision and our vision of what that building's going to be. It's just another creative hub and a creative um, little hive of activity that adds to the existing neighborhood.
0: What has the level of interest been so far?
2: Lots of interest. I mean, people are. I think it's it's Railtown is an existing neighborhood. We're not pioneering it, but we're we're going to be expanding on what's really there. I mean, up until now, uh, a lot of companies are, like I said, small companies. They take two, three, four thousand square feet. Uh, if they want to grow, they usually have to leave the neighborhood. We're mm-hmm. going to provide them with the opportunity to grow within Railtown. Um, so the the kind of we've had lots of interest, lots of people looking at it, um, and. Our vision is we you know within 12 months of being complete. So within six to seven months from now, we'll start to see some real activity when these small groups who aren't foreshadowing two or three years in advance are actually looking for space. Um, they're going to start coming up quite, quite quickly. And we think once we get the first deal done, it'll kind of snowball like it typically happens in real estate. One person's dead, everyone else wants to be there.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. And aside from the space that will become available in this particular development, are there other developments slated for the area that have larger spaces for what are maybe now smaller firms, but are going to be bigger firms in a couple of years' time?
2: Yes, definitely. Coincidentally, myself in partnership with Omicron, uh, we have another project down the road in the next block over, and that building is actually significantly larger uh, it's going to be 150,000 square feet. Uh, Four plates will range from about 12,000 to 27,000 square feet. And so this will give these same groups uh, the ability to expand exponentially if they need to and stay right in Railtown. Um, mm. It's kind of uh, looking at 611 Alexander, which is the very old building at the end, the east end of Railtown. And it's, it's a modern version of that building, which is exactly this internal. Uh, mix of all these different groups together in one building. So we envision Maker Exchange to be a similar a similar uh, building when it's complete.
0: Now, while I have you here, I want to pick your development brain for a moment. We hear a lot about the sure. permitting process here in Vancouver. What was that like for this particular project?
2: Well, it's been, it's been difficult. I think the city itself is overwhelmed with the amount of work going on. And, uh, you know, they've made efforts and efforts, significant efforts to try and accommodate it, uh, hiring new staff and trying to ramp up. But, um, you know, with any business, you have people that come and go. And uh, I think they've lost a few senior people and uh, the workload for them has been, uh, I would say, daunting. So it's been difficult. It's been a challenge for us to get permits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's just the nature of the business when we're in a market like we are today, where it's extremely busy. There's lots going on in all different sectors of development and construction. And uh, the city's finding it very difficult to keep up with it.
0: You mentioned another project you're working on. I'm sure there are many more. Is sort of permitting delays in the time it takes something you can build into the business plan? Is it something you have to build into the business plan?
2: Well, you definitely have to, but it's, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to uh, get the crystal ball accurate. Yeah. Um, we we factor in what we can, and then we put a little what I call slush into it. But uh, getting the timing down, it, it's it, it's a moving target. But, uh, you know, as a developer, that's, that's the risk we take on uh, trying to foresee the uncontrollable, which is other people, other groups, outside entities. Uh, to help us get what we need done, which is the permit, so we can build the building and provide um, opportunities for businesses in Vancouver.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if only we had that crystal ball. I wish I had the crystal ball; <laughs> it things a lot easier. I
2: need it more for the. Yeah, I need it more for the development.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Is it is it a different process when you're working with sort of a flexible kind of space versus, say, a straight up residential development?
2: Oh, for sure. And as far as the the city, let's start with the city permitting. um, You're under less public scrutiny on a commercial building than you are in residential. Um, The residential buildings have more public policy and public uh, um, input than commercial building. Commercial guidelines and zonings in the city are pretty straightforward. Uh, Nothing's really black and white, but I think the gray is pretty dark when you do a commercial building. Mm. So... Um, it's less, it's less um, onerous and pretty much more straightforward when you're dealing with the commercial building in Vancouver.
0: And tell me about the economics of a project like this, because of course, you're not building 50 stories of residential condos. It's six stories, I believe it's for commercial use. It's a, a different sort of matter altogether. Tell me sort of how the timelines you need to work with to make this economically viable and sort of what goes into planning a building like this.
2: Sure. And, you know, it's it's very similar to your planning a residential building. Residential does have more complexities. You're you're providing a, a 100% finished product, whereas when you do a commercial building, you're providing what I call a, a cold space or a vanilla shell for the tenant to come in or the the end user, and they essentially fit it out to their specific needs. So you're you're creating uh, something less onerous. Uh, but you know, for from a development standpoint there's still the risk and the timing the risk and the the product you're providing and trying to cater to an unknown market uh, when you're building a commercial building it's kind of the build it and they will come mentality where you, you 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 assume the market you assume the user and you're building something that hopefully caters to their expectations and requirements
0: Mhm. As we wrap up here Brian, you mentioned sort of your vision for Bench Railtown. I'm curious given you're having a hand in building up this community, what do you think Railtown's going to look like in 50 years time? What kind of a an asset, what kind of a community do you think it could be?
2: Yeah, well, you know, previously uh, I spent 8 years in in working in in Railtown, so I knew the area. So when this property and the other properties came up, I was quick to jump it. I'm just Knowing that area, I mean, I live in Strathcona, which is a few blocks away. I worked in Chinatown, so I'm kind of live and breathe in this neighborhood, um, which is which the first. Uh, I was very excited to have the opportunity. So, what I see Railtown morphing into essentially is an extension of what already exists. I mean, I envision this and see this in 50 years being uh, a larger community of the same eclectic mix of groups. I mean, it's a fantastic area to be. You walk down there during the day and it's a beehive of activity on the streets between, you know, the, the Aritzia crowd, the Herschel, and you've got the architects, engineers, you've got the artist studios that are on the West end, uh, at the West end of Railtown. Um, you've got the, the designers, the gamers, you've got Cube, which is a virtual reality, uh, company, you know, fronted by, uh, Microsoft. So you've got the different mix of people, um, and, you know, you, you sit in Railtown Cafe and just watch people coming in and out. There's a vibe in that little three-block stretch.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so the vision I see in 50 years from now is essentially an extension of that. Uh, the zoning um, does not allow a banker or a real estate agent or a broker to be in that area. There, so the, the, the zoning itself will allow and continue to allow this extension of this units. I mean, uh, groups like, you know, I'm sure it's been said before, but Hootsuite started there. Um, you know, I'm sure if they had the option to extend and stay in that neighborhood as they grew, they probably would still be there today. Mm. So that's the kind of groups I see being in there and and us providing this building and bench being a great cornerstone to restart the extension. Um, that's the vision I've always had for Motown.
0: Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks, Haley. Appreciate it.
0: That's Brian Roach, president at Rendition Developments. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher and listen at BIV.com where you can also find more business news. We'll be back tomorrow.